Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Aurora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey. I'm the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at University of Technology, Sydney. And my producer today is the esteemed professional Anthony Dockrell. Um, Today, I am delighted to welcome to the program Bill Birnbauer, a multi-award-winning investigative journalist, a recipient of the prestigious J.S. Knight Fellowship at Stanford, a journalism academic uh, from uh, Monash in Melbourne and other places, and now, and most importantly, an an author of a great new book on not-for-profit investigative journalism. That's not-for-profit work in the United States, but as we will all appreciate And as we're about to hear, the lessons from Bill's book are very much applicable to Australia, especially given the recent announcement of the $100 million Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism Ideas, plus a string of federal government level attempts to do more to support public interest journalism and a very interesting debate, a very urgent and interesting ongoing debate about public interest journalism in this country. Bill, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm very well and very happy to be here, Peter. Well, it's great to have you, and congratulations on the book, which, uh, weirdly, uh, I understand, is the first in the world on the subject. So, um, how did uh, you know Bill Birnbauer, a uh, humble Australian investigative journalist, get to write this world-first book? Tell us the background of that. Uh, well, it's a long background. I, um, I was lucky... Uh, to receive a uh, Knight Fellowship at Stanford, uh, as you mentioned, and that really introduced me to the uh, whole idea of foundation-funded both journalism and journalism education. And then in the late 90s, I received a letter out of the blue. At at that time, I was a reporter at The Age, Mm. and um, I can't remember what beat I was doing, but um, having been at Stanford... um, the ICIJ, which is the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, uh, was setting up uh, from Washington. And what it did was cherry-pick various reporters from uh, Stanford uh, who might have had a bit of an investi- investigative um, 
inclination as well as uh, Harvard and invited them to join this outfit, a new outfit, a non-profit outfit that would do global investigative journalism. Mm -hmm. And I remember receiving this letter and I I thought, what the hell is this about? Because it had language such as, you are one of the world's uh, leading investigative reporters. And uh, I thought, yeah, okay. (laughs) Well, that that was true. It's not not, they weren't lying. What is this about? Um, and we're inviting you to join other reporters uh, in as many countries as possible to work on stories that are global in nature. That is, stories that don't, don't stop at a border. So mm. we're looking at corruption, environmental issues and so forth. And we're going to do this in a collaborative way. Mm-hmm. Now, you might remember I was a fairly uh, competitive journalist in, in my day, and uh, I thought the whole notion of actually collaborating with an American journalist or someone in Brazil or po- possibly in Africa or Europe seemed a bit foreign to me. So um, I was kind of intrigued but a bit wary. Mm-hmm. What happened then was they decided they'd invite us all to... Um, a conference, and I think the first one was um, it was either in Washington or um, up in um, Boston. Mm-hmm. And we got together, and there were about sixty of us there, and investigative journalists from you know forty or fifty countries. And I realised then that we all had um, basically the same uh, values, uh, the same interests, the same methodologies. I thought this could be okay. The leaders of the ICRJ were very impressive people, people like Chuck Lewis Mm -hmm. and Maud Billman at that time. And I got involved in doing a couple of projects um, for the ICRJ, just just quickly. One was about um, how tobacco companies were uh, forming alliances with criminal organisations. And the second one was about water privatisation around the world. And... What we produced, um, actually, I thought was quite incredible because here I was at the age doing what I think is reasonable journalism. I, I don't like to comment on my own work. But what I was really excited about was writing about tobacco smuggling into China. And mm-hmm. that sort of inflamed me and I, I could see the potential uh, of a collaborative network and, and also non-profit journalism. So that, that was really the beginning that opened my eyes to that whole... Uh, Nonprofit. So, so um, what? Uh, where were we? What year was that, roughly? Uh, that was in the early two thousand. Right. Okay. So it really has been a, a, a long labour of love. This book. Well, it, it has indeed. And so when I uh, took a buyout from Fairfax, now nine, uh, back in two thousand and eight, um, uh, I, I became a senior, a tenured senior lecturer. At Monash, and I was teaching investigative journalism and um, feature writing. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I undertook a PhD, and um, I figured, well, let's have a look at this model. And initially, I was going to look at what are the lessons for Australia from the non-profit sector. But look, it grew so rapidly during the GFC years, and I'm talking about the global financial crisis in mm-hmm. 2008, 2009, and part of 2010, and what happened there was fascinating because there was an explosion in the number of non-profit organisations uh, starting up and foundations pouring money into the, the, that sector. And so I figured, well, let's do some research. And when I looked around, uh, well, 
there was there wasn't much to be read. So I said, oh well, I'll, <laughs> maybe I'll give it a go and do it myself. Yeah, well, and and it's a very interesting picture because. The picture you present is is quite sobering. Uh, you, I mean, you don't pull any punches. You're certainly not a book you, you're reading. Oh, rah rah journalism. I mean, it's very vital, no. vitally important what you've written about journalism. But it's not. Oh, isn't journalism great? You're very sober about it. In parts of it, it's very painful because you you do paint this picture in the broad, and you know there's a lot of detail in here. And um, I'd encourage any listener interested in this to go and get the book. But uh, in the broad. You paint this picture of the not-for-profit sector in in the U.S. being sort of dominated by donors to you know a few, if you like, rock star um, uh, play outfits, and and then a lot of other not-for-profits really doing it hard. I mean, there's this massive funding disparity, right? Can you well, elaborate is, on that? Yes, absolutely. Look, what I didn't want to do was romanticise it, and what I tried to, even though I am inflamed, I, can, I have to tell you, with the the work that some of these non-profits are doing, I'm very excited about the journalism, um, some of which is winning Pulitzer Prizes. I mean, it's, it is the leading edge of investigative work and data journalism mm-hmm. in the United States. However, I, you know, I, I didn't want to uh, come at this with sort of rose-coloured glasses. Um, and, you know, the disparities you mentioned are, are enormous. So we've got three or four uh, non-profit organisations, and I'm talking about ProPublica, the Centre for Public Integrity, the Centre for Investigative Reporting, and Mother Jones, which are all very different, but, you know, they're national in scope, uh, really sucking up uh, a lot of the foundation and other funding in the sector, at the same time, you know, I visited uh, some of the smaller outfits and I walked into an office <laughs> and there's a desk and a chair and a computer and an old crusty guy sitting behind it. And I said, you know, is this the <laughs> office of this uh, non-profit that's producing all this brilliant work? And the guy said, yeah, that's me. <laughs> right. So, you know, we're looking at budget differentials in the tens of millions of dollars annually uh, for the bigger non-profits. And for the smaller ones, you know, somewhere between one hundred and two hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and um, a significant difference in the amount of work being produced and and the quality of work as well. So, why does this happen? Is it is it basically donors being a bit bedazzled by you know a few, as I say, rock star outfits, and the rest not quite hit, hitting the buttons? Because one of the other things you point out is that more often than not, the ones that are missing out on the funding are doing trying to address these issues, which in the U.S. is called these news uh, deserts, deserts, uh, you know, and a lot of local reporting or state-based reporting or health and environment stuff reporting on minorities. They're the ones who are missing out, and you obviously argue that they're as, as, as vital to the sort of journalism ecosystem as the big-picture investigative pieces, right? Yeah, the real news deserts in the United States and, and probably here as well are uh, in regional areas and um, in, in cities. So just to give you an idea of these disparities before I come to the reasons. Um, mm-hmm. So the Institute for Nonprofit News is like an association of nonprofit organizations in the United States. And I, I look at the funding of about 60 of these organizations um, between the years of 2009 and 2015. And I found they were funded uh, to the tune of about 170... Uh, sorry, $470 yep. million, which, which, you know, is a, is a fair chunk of money, really, um, for the non-profit sector. Nothing like uh, the amount of funding um, generated in the 
uh, mainstream media. Nevertheless, a significant amount of money. But uh, those organisations that I mentioned, all three of them, ProPublica, Centre for Public Integrity, Centre for Investigative Reporting, Mm -hmm. uh, sucked up about 40% of that money. And when you look at the 470-odd thousand, the top 20 non-profits in the United States, of which there are around 200, um, took up about $430 million. The bottom 20 um, in my little survey um, uh, only received $7 million or 2% of the total. So there, there is this massive disparity um, of funding. And I think uh, part, part of that reason is that the big foundations, and I'm talking about the Knight Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, uh, um, the McCormack Foundation, the Ford Foundation, are really quite conservative, conservative in nature. And, um, you know, they're going to organisations and granting to organisations. They know the journalism, they know the people, and they know that when those organisations, the non-profit organisations, publish a story, it's very likely that that story will also be published in... Um, Media with a lot of capital. So I'm yeah. talking about the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Chicago right. Tribune. So, um, you know, they, they, I think that partly explains the reasons. The other reason um, is that for some of these that are scattered around the United States, they're either niche organisations or trying to report on um, cities, community foundations, family foundations, individuals are really yet to understand um, or, or um, uh, grasp the fact that um, journalism that's being produced by these organisations is a public good. So, you know, they're giving to the opera and they're giving to cha- other charities, and um, but they're not giving to journalism. So unless that increases um, that awareness within uh, regional and local foundations, which the picture over there is totally different to Australia. There are many more foundations. Mm. Um, you know, this grassroots uh, news desert will continue to grow, unfortunately. Well, of course, the situation is, uh, in this, on terms of philanthropy, is even more bleak here. But I'm going to pose a, a hypothetical for you, okay? So uh, uh, a woman who uh, supports the arts, usually, and various other things, suddenly calls you up and says, Bill, I've read your book. I love everything you've done on, uh, you know, as a journalist. You're a fantastic academic. And, uh, and now I, I can see you've got some great expertise in, in supporting journalism, philanthropy, etc. My name is Judith Nielsen. I have $100 million. Bill, what do you do with it? Okay, so, you know, what, what I would like to do with it is supplement what the mainstream media is doing. I... I want to set up an organisation that does public interest and investigative journalism um, to do the kind of stories that are not being done in Australia. And uh, there are, we could go through a whole list of those kind of stories. I would then employ um, 10 uh, investigative journalists and then all the production people as well. And I would do long-term investigations, six months, a year, two years, all in the public interest. Mm-hmm. That Those stories wouldn't just be published on whatever website we choose to um, set up, but they would also be offered to 
organisations to four corners. Would mm-hmm. they take it? I don't know. They can't really resist a great story. Um, the, the nine people, the Australian, the Murdochs or whoever, uh, so that we co-published at the same time. Mm-hmm. The fact is the media here, and there are some fantastic individual investigative journalists, simply can't afford to take a year or two years to produce uh, stories that um, some of these non-profits are producing. Mm-hmm. So have you set this up, or are we talking hypothetical? <laughs> no, I haven't. I'm retired. Uh, you'll never retire, my friend. But um, <laughs> That's true. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, have you put it to uh, the Judith Nielsen Institute? No, I haven't. And and I why not? Know. Oh, well, I, they haven't, I'm waiting for them to talk to me because, uh, you know, in your introduction, you described my background. Surely they would know it. Um, I, I haven't contacted them. I'm happy to talk to them. Um, I did speak to the ACCC this morning, and, uh, you know, they're looking at this whole area as well as part of the mm. digital uh, inquiry. Um, I've also put in submissions to the Senate, which have been adopted and here's $100 million. If they're wondering what to do with it, I could certainly um, give them a few hints. What I hope they don't do is spend it on further, you know, stuff like further research, um, setting up anything that's kind of journalism-related. I, I would like to see that money going to the production of public service journalism. As opposed to thinking and talking about it. Yeah. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Mm. And have you uh, had anything to do with the Public Interest Journalism Initiative that comes out of Melbourne? Uh, I've consulted with them. I'm not on the board, um, but I have uh, spoken to them extensively. And um, again, I, I, I was uh, I spoke to them this morning briefly. And um, yeah, uh, you know they're they're quoting me left, right, and centre. So well, I've noticed um, that. Yes, uh, I, you know I'm I'm just doing it as a, the benefit of my research, really. Mm. Mm, Bill, it sounds like I should become your agent. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> Look, I'm a journalist at heart, and uh, you know, probably ninety percent a journalist, ten percent an academic. <laughs> and um, you know, journalists. One one of the challenges journalists in the US have faced in setting up uh, these organisations is that they they know journalism and investigative journalism and how to pursue a story. <laughs> But they don't know about marketing and they don't know about paying the rent and paying salaries yeah. and, um, you know, um, selling stories and yeah. so forth. Yeah. So, um, it's a, you know, or fundraising, I guess, is the big one. Yeah. So that, um, you know, there's, there's only uh, so much time. <laughs> well, we should, we should talk when we're off air about all this. But um, tell me, uh, do you see any uh, signs of hope in the local uh, sort of sector? I mean, for instance... The uh, Balnaves and the Susan McKinnon Foundation have uh, recently, last year or so, given quite a bit of money to the Guardian, the local Guardian. Uh, and there is things like the PG, the Public Interest Journalism Initiative, and obviously quite a lot of attention at um, a government and quasi-government level, Senate Inquiry, ACCC, etc. So do you, th- do you detect that the sort of, if you like, the atmospherics are changing? Yes, I do, and I found the last 10 years looking at this incredibly frustrating because of the lack of activity here in Australia. But, no, there are stirrings, uh, which is a very positive sign. Uh, There's quite a way to go as yet, and uh, I think into that mix, uh, obviously, should be universities, I think, which do have a lot to offer um, in terms of... um, 
well, all the facilities and students and people who can do research and so forth, um, university-based centres are uh, quite popular in the United States. So mm. there are stirrings. What, what isn't particularly apart from Judith Nelson and maybe Susan McKinnon, you know, the, um, I don't think uh, foundations or film, philanthropic uh, organisations in Australia are yet seeing journalism as an area of need. You know, what, what they need to... How they need to view journalism is like people see the opera, art galleries, mm. education, a public good, uh, an institution that needs support. And um, that, that includes both the wealthy funders but also the mum and dad donors. So... Um, there, you know, there needs to be a recontextualisation um, and an increase in media literacy about uh, what journalism can achieve, what is its role in a democracy, um, what is fake news and spin, uh, and what is real journalism. Mm. So I, I think there's a really broad um, education uh, program campaign at all levels, really, that needs to take place. And and for, uh, you know, some philanthropists to think, well, you know, I've given to um, a cancer ward, why don't I give to, mm. um, you know, Michael West, for example, or, or, um, or Matilda or, or yeah. someone like that. Yeah. Um, you know, there's... Um, there's not that recognition as yet. But, but do you do you I, think do you think journalism, in a sense, uh, has failed to make that case because it yes. was supported for so many years by a, a different business model, essentially an advertising-based business model, and it didn't have to be uh, having that dialogue with its readers necessarily. Some of some of some of us did, some of us didn't, but it didn't necessarily have to have that dialogue, and so therefore, you know, decades have gone by and people have taken it for granted, and now. Uh, when the you know the golden goose is gone, uh, we have to change what we say about ourselves. I think uh, I think we and I haven't well certainly I might be you know speaking generally from my experiences very rarely thought about the audience. Mm. Uh, you know there was this notion of a list a readers and b readers and so forth, but um, we didn't do enough really to um, uh, pass on. Uh, why we think what we do is important. And I think journalists were fairly arrogant. Um, I think they set, uh, believed they should set the news agenda, that the public were recipients rather than mm. contributors to the news, um, and that, uh, you know, we'll tell the public what's important. Now, that, that's obviously changed, obviously changed, um, to a degree, maybe not enough. But I, I think what we're seeing now and what you're describing really is um, is the product of that kind of arrogance? Mm. Uh, yeah, we've we've woken up, but hopefully we haven't woken up too late. Tell tell me, are there putting aside foundations and donation? You know, rich people. What other business models do you see that could possibly fund investigative journalism? Well, look, I really like um, the Mother Jones kind of model um, that's been built up over the last 40, dec uh, 40 years. And, um, you know, they're, they're funded largely not by foundations or wealthy people as such, but by readers. And um, I, I, I really like that model, the subscription kind of model. Um, yes, they've got a magazine uh, that comes out um, every couple of months, I think, uh, but mainly their website. 
they're constantly appealing for funds. So, um, you know, I, I, I think unless you can actually grasp that kind of support, you're not really proving your relevance to the readership. So I, I think that model really is important and, and crucial. Um, and there are then there are endowments, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the endowments kind of model. Um, I think in the US there are also kind of commercial setups, maybe Lenfest might be one in Philadelphia, which um, then put put their profits into the non-profit sector. So, but it is limited. You know, there, there are only so many, um, so many sources of money. Um, unfortunately, in, in the States, you know, there was a... When I first started looking at this, everyone thought foundations would fund uh, these endeavours for mm. three long time. or four mm. years, mm. and then um, we'd all get earned revenue and uh, we wouldn't depend on foundations. Well... That hasn't happened. Um, you know, earned, earned revenue. What we're talking about there are story sales. Well, the mainstream media don't pay don't pay for stories over there from non-profits. Uh, we're looking at events management, mm. <laughs> um, like the Texas Tribune runs events virtually every day. Mm. Um, um, we're talking about uh, you know classes, summer schools, and so forth. Very little. It's real. Really, does depend a lot on foundations. We had uh, Robert Rosenthal in on the show uh, middle of last year from the uh-huh. Center for Investor Reporting, and one of the things he said, uh, which I thought was very interesting, was the other area they explore is different forms of investigative journalism. So, you know, traditionally investigative journalism, a big, you know, big newspaper piece, if you like, or a big website piece or a big TV piece, you know, uh, it's, it's long, it's, 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 you know, it's got a lot of deep research in it. But he, he was, for instance, talking about uh, investigative journalism that can be iterated as a cartoon book, a comic book, a movie, a play, yeah. uh, all sorts of yeah. things. I mean, that that area is largely untapped in this country, right? I mean, yeah, there's not a lot is. of examples and, uh, of it. Yeah, Robert's uh, been a, a leader in that field. Um, so, you know, when, when they did um, a big investigation on schools that are located in earthquake-prone areas, um, they produced uh, a comic book um, to, for kids, basically, to teach them safety. They produced um, uh, a, uh, an app where you could actually locate uh, the earthquake faults. Wow. Um, they also had finger puppets. Uh, they had poets <laughs> taking uh, the outcomes of investigations. They had street theatre type things. So... You know, Robert Rosenthal, probably more than anyone that I came across, hunts audiences, Mm. hunts audiences, produces um, Spanish versions, you know, um, foreign language versions of all these stories. Now, um, you know, Reveal, they've rebranded into Reveal, um, is run on um, public radio with, I think, about 500 stations across the United States. And so more than anyone, he, he has actually chased audiences. And so when uh, the other thing they did was when they produced an investigative story, um, they would distribute it to um, newspapers and, and they would um, look at each story, look at the locality of the newspaper and make it uh, specific to that region. So, you know, put a different intro on mm-hmm. it, put a different emphasis on it, quote some locals, um, they did all that work in order to increase their reach. 
Mm. So if you were talking to your younger self, so the 20, how, how old were you when, when you joined? You joined the Melbourne Herald first, didn't you? I did, back in 1975. Okay, let's go back to 1975, and the older, more mature, much more wiser Bill Burnbarrow can talk to the younger Bill Burnbarrow in 1975. What would the older one say to the younger one? Uh, that's, that's a pretty good question. Um, I had to come up with one. <laughs> uh, I, look, I, I don't think I'd give myself any different advice. I, I'm one of those fortunate people that... Um, kind of fell into journalism and um, it, it kind of happened and I, I took to it, I think, more than I would take to anything else that I might try. Uh, just uh, work hard. I, I think I worked, um, and you might remember this from the days back at the Sunday Age, but mm. I, I worked incredibly hard and for some reason that I'm yet to put my finger on and I'm not that introspective, but... I, I really did stories that involved um, seeking justice for people who are in some way done over by other individuals or the system. So I, I, a bit of an equaliser in that sense. But no, my advice would be uh, pretty much to uh, pursue your passion, really. And work hard. And work hard, yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, you're listening to The Fourth Estate across Australia on the Community Radio Network, coming to you from 2SER Studios in Sydney. And my name is Peter Frey, and my guest is Bill Birnbauer, investigative journalist, academic, and the author of a new book on not-for-profit investigative journalism in the United States. Uh, you mentioned the ICIJ, the International Consortium of uh, Investigative Journalists, Journalism, uh, run by one of our former colleagues, Gerald Ryle. Uh, yes. And they, you were, you, were begin, you were there at the beginning, and of course, most recently, they've been known for the big data leaks, the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers, and of course, most recently, the implant files. Do you see that kind of large-scale, collaborative, trans-border, possibly data-led type journalism being uh, replicable other, outside of the ICIJ, or is the kind of the ICIJ the sort of last word in that? Well, there's the ICIJ, there's the OCCRP, I think they're called, oh, um, yeah. which does similar work in Europe and um, parts of uh, the Balkans and Eastern Europe. Um, there are other European-based um, collaborative outfits um, involving mainstream media, that uh, m mainstream public and non-profit media. So... I guess what I'm saying is that I'm seeing this trend to uh, collaboration um, continuing. So when I, I interviewed Bill Keller, who um, was the uh, executive editor of the New York Times and now runs the Marshall Project, which mm. is a non-profit that looks at um, the criminal justice system, and he says the biggest change he's seen in his lifetime is this move to collabor collaborative arrangements. And mm. so... Um, you know, ICIJ, at the heart of ICIJ is one word, and that's trust. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so, you know, you, I can be a journalist investigating um, something in Australia, um, provi you know, given a database provided by the ICIJ, Gerard Ryle, um, uh, colleagues around the world in different countries are working, and we've given this undertaking that we're not going to scoop each other. Mm. But th that's a totally new thing in journalism, really. Yeah, that, of course. You know, that we are seeing that the um, combined efforts, the, the whole is bigger than the individual parts. So, um, you know, we, I'm currently involved um, 
in um, the network committee of the RCIJ and um, what we do is approve new members and uh, reject some applications. And the one thing we actually look... Well, we look at several things when we're looking at journalists. Um, we're looking at the country they're in, their media organisation and the amount of uh, collaboration and teamwork that they have done, because no. that's crucial, this kind of work. Do I see it spreading to other organisations? I, I, I'm not sure. I, I did try to set up a, a student um, equivalent to this um, back in <laughs> my days at Monash, and uh, I couldn't get funding for it. But, no. you know, the student press is very vigorous, as you know, in Australia, and I figured, well, what if all these student publications just did one story yep. and did it in different states? So, you know, that's a, obviously a mini, small-scale version of it. But, yeah, collaboration is a big thing. But it's not really happening, apart from, say, Nick McKenzie and Four Corners and maybe one or two others, mm. it's not happening in Australia. There, I think there's still this level of distrust, of suspicion, of maybe arrogance, um, that, you know, we're not going to um, give our story to television or to the publicly uh, funded media. We're going to do it ourselves. And yet the reach and the impact of collaborative effort is, is far greater. How would you, well, just on that, I mean, I think there might be an argument about scale, I suppose you could talk, talk about that, but also in terms of regional journalism, where you know these news 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 desserts are uh, emerging in this country, in particular, I think, um, what could be done there? What needs to be done? Um, well, that, that's a good question. Uh, again, um, if we had a system of um, tax deductibility for non-profit journalism in this country, we might see more um, professional journalists setting up organisations and collaborating with regional newspapers to report on areas of public interest. Now, that's still a fair way off, but um, I think um, DGR, tax deductibility, um, and I can talk a lot more about what that might look like, um, might might be a step um, in terms of uh, having, again, these collaborations between, I guess, mainly the ABC in those areas, some of the regional papers mm. and a non-profit, you know, all, all working on the same story. Um, but that is an area of enormous need, I, I agree, in Australia. Yeah, because it's, it's not happening at no. all. They're not, no. not at all. Yeah, okay. No, no. Are you, uh, on, uh, maybe I'd like to, I always like to finish on an optimistic note. Are you optimistic about the future of journalism? Uh, oh, yes, I am. I am. Why? Unlike some of my colleagues. <laughs> yeah. uh, because I think of the teaching experience. Um, you know, the university um, uh, showed me that a lot of the uh, young journalists coming through today, um, you know, the old, the old journos and the old sub-editors, a lot of them would kind of dismiss them as um, sort of millennials, <laughs> you know, who um, only are interested in... Um, uh, shallow, shallow things and no substance at all. I, I, I think uh, young people are interested in politics, are interested in the media, no more than we give them credit for. Mm. Um, I, I think um, that this move to setting up startups uh, is starting to occur. Maybe it's a bit behind uh, what's happening in the US, well, way behind, yep. um, and some other countries. But I, I think... Um, 
I think there's a clamouring for quality information. And as I see it, um, people are sick and tired of... um, uh, journalism that doesn't that they don't value that is of no value to them, and so um, I think they're willing to put their hands in their pockets and pay for information. Um, they're willing to um, subscribe to digital um, media. I'm, I'm talking about the mainstream mm-hmm. media, maybe not some of the natives. Um, and I, I think uh, there's an increasing will- willingness to regard what's free on the internet largely as rubbish, you know, listicles and icicles and <laughs> lists of this and lists of that, um, and uh, or Facebook for, for that matter. Uh, and um, one, one information that's been verified by someone mm-hmm. that's impartial, that's nonpartisan, and that is going to help them make key decisions in their lives. As a beautiful note to finish on, um Bill Burnbath, thank you so much for being on Fourth Estate. I'm going to give the, I'm going to read out the full title of the book. It's the rise of nonprofit investigative journalism in the United States. It's by our guest today, Bill Burnbauer. Um And Bill, thank you so much for your time. And I hope to see you in full, not just your behind, in uh, <laughs> in the near future. Great to talk to you, Peter. Thanks, Bill. And and I do say go buy the book or borrow it from your library. It ain't cheap, but it's worth it. Um, That's it from The Fourth Estate uh, for this edition. Make sure you subscribe to The Fourth Estate on your favorite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics, and a few things in between at your leisure. We'll be back with more next week. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. My name is Peter Frey. The producer is Anthony Dockrell. Thank you so much for listening.